Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I want to um, start out the talk with um, some lines from the Buddha, the Dhammapada. He says, Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. Drink deeply, live in serenity and joy. A wise person delights in the truth and follows the law of the awakened. I want to talk tonight on joy and on seeing um, Buddha Dharma as a path of happiness. Sometimes um, this path, and as we practice, it can seem so profound, it is profound and deep, that sometimes it can get a bit serious and we can forget that the Buddha was talking about happiness. You know, there can be this emphasis on suffering and the end of suffering, and sometimes um, happiness doesn't get as much of airplay. But the Buddha was called the happy one. And in fact, uh, as probably many of you know, he was motivated to teach after he experienced his own awakening by seeing that all around, everybody wants to be happy and they're doing exactly the things that are leading towards more suffering. And with that understanding, he was moved by compassion to share what he'd understood so that people can really see where happiness lies. And he said, if you go for the highest happiness then all the other kinds of genuine happiness will come. The Dalai Lama starts out his wonderful book, The Art of Happiness, with the line, the purpose of life is to be happy. It's a good opening line to a book, isn't it? Make me want to read it. The purpose of life is to be happy. But we have to find for ourselves. We have to look deeply to see where true happiness lies. And I want to share a little bit at the the start of this talk about my own um, process, my own journey into seeing the Dharma and practice as a a path of of joy and happiness. Because I went through a number of different uh, phases in it. One, when I first was exposed to the practice, <clears throat> I think I, I mentioned that, that first summer at Naropa in 1974, and uh, I found what I was looking for as I heard Joseph Goldstein share the Dharma. And it just seemed so like I'd come home But there was this one moment where I had some doubt. Um, And it was a moment, it was in this this class, the Essential Buddhism class. And uh, and I should preface it by saying I am um, a big sports fan. Did I say that in one of the other talks? Oh, yeah, that's right. In the morning instructions, football thoughts, I gave that. Well, at that point, um, I... um, 
was a season ticket holder to uh, the New York Knicks in their glory years, if anyone's old enough to remember Walt Frazier and Willis Reed and Earl the Pearl was my favorite player. But I was, uh, there is a point to the story. And I, <laughs> and I came into the, um, uh, to the, the class and I was wearing my New York Knicks t-shirt. And I was there you know, doing the meditation and then all of a sudden I remembered I was wearing my Knicks shirt and this horrifying thought came to me and I went up afterwards uh, as soon as the class ended with very sincere concern um, saying to Joseph, uh, look, um, I'm a season ticket holder to the Knicks. Am I going to go into Madison Square Garden if I really do this practice and go in and say, nice shot, Frazier. You know, Good shot, Havlicek. Okay. <laughs> and lose my passion because I, am, uh, I have that kind of passion in life. And uh, I wasn't ready to, go to give that one up. He assured me, by the way, no, you'll go and enjoy the game. It just it might be a different perspective, but you will probably feel your, uh, your intense um, joy in the moment. And he was right. Um, you know, still now you can tell whatever my team is doing probably down the block at times if, uh, if I'm really into it. And I was fortunate enough though, to get intense about something that cooled me out like meditation. And so I, I really put my heart into it once I saw, okay, um, this is, I can still live my life and, um, and find some peace inside. Uh, but as I um, practiced, after some years, I, um, I got into a, a sticky place in misunderstanding some of the teachings, sitting with um, one master, I remember, who would every evening uh, end the Dharma talks, may you speedily get off the wheel, escape from samsara, and know the bliss of nibbana, which can be a very inspiring line, but for me, what, what did that mean, escape from samsara? which is this worldly life. And I misunderstood, as sometimes can happen, some messages and somehow confused the end of suffering with the end of living. And there was a, a part, uh, a phase that I went through where I was conflicted about letting myself really enjoy life. It seemed very un-Buddhist as I started to go in this direction of understanding the teachings. And in fact, there are some uh, ways that this misunderstanding can happen very easily. I want to share with you one um, actually two teachings that can easily be confused into this uh, deadening of the spirit or deadening of one's aliveness. There's the, um, the principle or the, um, the teaching on Samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A, and uh, probably a number of people know Samvega, if you don't, here's the definition of Samvega, which is a very um, important understanding to, um, to, come, to come to. This is the, the definition from Access to Insight um, website. Samvega, the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of our own complacency and foolishness in having let ourselves live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. What does that mean? The operative words the ones to really understand 
realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it is normally lived. And this is so as we see for ourselves that where we usually think happiness can be found in getting the next thing, in having all of our desires met, the futility and the meaninglessness of that. But it's easy to get caught in understanding that the problem or thinking that the problem is out there in life, not realizing that it's in here our relationship to life and that life is just life. It's not bad. It's not good. It has its 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. But if we misunderstand where happiness is found, we are going to create a lot of suffering. And when we, when we understand, we can be free of that confusion and come into the real happiness. But that was one that I didn't quite get for a while. I just got into the meaninglessness of life. Another teaching is the, um, the word nibida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, which uh, in some teachings, Andy Olensky has a really great um, article on this, on nibida. Um, in some of the teachings, nibida is translated as utter disgust. One should have utter disgust for the aggregates, for this mind-body process and all the other aggregates floating around us, clumps of aggregates floating around us. One should have revulsion for the aggregates. This is, in some translations, what the word nibbita means, utter disgust and revulsion for for this form and for life in some, some ways that it's, uh, it's also used. But as Andy points out so beautifully in the article, what nibida really means is disenchantment. One should have disenchantment that is breaking the spell of enchantment, breaking the trance and seeing through what we think we are enchanted by, what we think will bring us happiness, and seeing, oh, this is, uh, it's a waking up to see, oh, this is not going to bring me the deepest kind of happiness. But again, unless you understand that and you read, one should have utter disgust and revulsion, there can be a tendency to veer off which I did. And uh, one thing that brought me back was uh, after going through a a dark period for a while um, with my own ideas about what Buddhism and Buddha Dharma was about, um, I I visited a teacher, not planning on that this would have this effect, but I, I saw a really wonderful teacher who was very inspiring for me named H.W.L. Uh, uh, Punja, known as sometimes as Punjaji or Papaji. And I went to visit him. This is in 1990. Uh, he's passed away, I think, in 1995. And this man, he wasn't a, a Buddhist. He was an Advaita master, disciple of Ramana Maharshi, who just glowed. And when you sit, sat in his presence, you felt the depth of the, the silence. And he would talk about emptiness all the time. It was his favorite word. Empty. It's all empty. It's all empty. But he was having a really good time. <laughs> and I, uh, I had loads of questions. I had so many questions. What were we, and, he, and he would say with such patience, Give me all your questions. Do you have any more questions? Well, I just, give me your questions. Finally, I, after I had asked all of, his, all of the questions I could think of, you know, there was this one question at my, the, towards the end of my stay, and I said, Punjaji, I want to ask you something. When you talk about emptiness, there is such delight and joy and 
you know, radiance that comes out of you. When I hear Dharma talks on Buddhism about emptiness and ones that I give myself, it's very deep, but it's not as much delight as yours. You know? Now, what gives? Why is your emptiness so much more fun than, <laughs> than the emptiness I've been hanging around with? And he uh, uh, gave this beautiful response. He said, you know, sometimes when people have experienced their, their depth of uh, touching the truth in the stillness of meditation, there can be um, an association that that is where the real truth is found. And that in the action, in the, the world of appearances, in the world of, of, of activity, it's not quite as profound. And so anything outside of that stillness seems less important or, uh, or can be frivolous. He says, my emptiness, my emptiness includes everything. My emptiness includes love and sorrow and joy and confusion and chaos and my no rejecting in my emptiness, he says, and laughed and laughed. And it reminded me of what I knew to be true many years before, that the Dharma includes everything. And I was just getting into a a kind of narrow view. And then after seeing him, I came back to Buddha Dharma and looked more deeply and seeing what is here in Buddha Dharma that can uh, reflect that attitude. And it's everywhere. I just was looking at a very narrow expression of it. It's everywhere. And I... This is what I want to talk about tonight. But just to make the point that deadening of the spirit, lack of joy, lack of aliveness are not signs of awakening. (laughs) Joy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's one of the four Brahma Viharas. It is in uh, the jhanic factors that we can find real happiness inside. It is in a number of other lists, and it is an innate capacity that we all have. Suffering is not a factor of enlightenment, by the way. Joy is a factor of enlightenment. It's something that we all have. Babies have it. When When you're born into the world, you have that delight and well-being, as long as your diapers are changed and you're fed and you're taken care of, you see a baby that's got its needs met, and what does it do? Kind of delights and squeals, and, and it reminds us that that is a way to open to life. And that's what we experience when we're not confused, when we're not stressed, when we're not frightened, that that is our natural being, and it shines through. I want to um, share with you uh, a passage from Ajahn Sumedho, who I've quoted each time. This is my, this is a very special passage for, for me around this topic. He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That is a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. 
People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. That is mudita. So, after getting lost uh, for a while and then reclaiming my natural joy, um, I've been focused on seeing how these teachings have uh, lead to happiness. And I've been on a kind of mission in the last few years to convey that to others because it can be... uh, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm alone in this uh, in this misunderstanding, and I like to convey it to those who have been practicing Buddha Dharma very diligently, and also those who are looking for greater happiness who might never have heard of Buddha Dharma. That these teachings have in them a, a, a path that leads to joy not only in the highest happiness, which we are all, uh, I think, so um, inspired by, but that other happinesses along the way cultivate and lead to that highest happiness. So I, uh, I uh, teach these courses called Awakening Joy, six-month courses, and this is the six-month course in about... 40 minutes. <clears throat> so what I, I have looked at is uh, are certain aspects of the teachings that when put together, I think, um, can really lead in this way. One aspect of the teachings is um, understanding of right effort. Now, right effort... Classically, there's four aspects to right effort. There's guarding against what is unwholesome and overcoming when an unwholesome state arises. And then there is developing wholesome states. And when a wholesome state arises, the Buddha suggests to maintain and increase those wholesome states. That's part of right effort. When a wholesome state is here to maintain and increase the wholesome state, this isn't cheating. It's the suggestion. It's skillful practice. So this is one thing, to develop and maintain and increase wholesome states when they arise. A second aspect of the teachings uh, from a discourse that is in the Majima um, which I just happened upon. I hadn't heard it for years until I happened to stumble upon it. Um, The Buddha says, um, that gladness that is connected with what is wholesome, that gladness connected with what is wholesome I call an equipment of mind to overcome ill will and hostility. The gladness that's connected with what is wholesome is an equipment of mind to overcome ill will and hostility. And then he gives the example, he gives a number of different examples of different equipments of mind. He says, for instance, suppose you're in the middle of an act of generosity He says in this discourse, one should think, should be thinking right in the middle of the action, oh, I'm generous. And as one reflects on that, oh, I'm being generous now, one gladdens the heart, one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the Dharma. And that gladness is an equipment of mind. Now, he's not saying when you're being generous to get into 
Do you see how generous I am? Hey, I'm a pretty generous person. He's not saying, take ownership of that. Oh, look at me. All that does is reify self. But my understanding is feeling how good it feels as that comes through. Oh, it feels so good to be generous. Because then as you reflect on that, it's like you're giving it airplay and you want to go for that good feeling. Whereas if you kind of dismiss or deny, oh, well, I'm, yeah, I'm supposed to be generous. You don't get the joy of it and allow it to flower. So he says, get in touch with the gladness connected with what is wholesome. And then the third aspect of of the teachings from another discourse that has always struck me, I think I might have mentioned it actually in, in one of the earlier talks, that very simple, profound line that says, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Whatever you frequently think and ponder upon will be the inclination of your mind. If you frequently think and ponder upon how you're a jerk, that will be the inclination of your mind. If you frequently think and ponder upon how you know, life is disappointing, that will be the inclination. If you frequently think and ponder upon how good this feels when I do something wholesome, how beautiful this being is in front of me, that starts to become the inclination of your mind. So as we develop and maintain and increase wholesome states and feel the gladness of them, really being present for that, with commitment, we start to incline our minds towards more gladness and joy. So, what I, the way I see this as a path to happiness is seeing all the different ways that are suggested in the teachings to develop wholesome states and be very present for them as we're engaging in them. And I'll mention a few. I, I probably won't, I won't get to all of them, or maybe I'll just go through them quickly. But just to, just to point in this direction as you do practice, not only here, but you know, some people are going to be um, going out into their daily life in, 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 the, in uh, a week or so. And just to know that it doesn't stop here. You can cultivate wholesome states wherever you are. So the first, which I gave a talk about um, earlier in the month, is intention. It all starts with intention. Everything rests on the tip of one's motivation, that line that I mentioned before. And intention is not just intention to be a good meditator, but if you really want to incline your mind towards more well-being and happiness and joy, it means the intention to be happy. As long as you know where true happiness lies, this is a healthy thing to do. And I mentioned uh, before, not everybody was here, about this book that, um, that I, I love called How We Choose to Be Happy um, by these folks who have become good friends of mine uh, about the nine choices of extremely happy people where these folks spent three years identifying extremely happy people and distilled the nine choices that were common to them all. It turned out to be nine. They thought sense of humor was going to be one of them and it was going to be ten, but it wasn't universal, almost universal, but they said, no, just everything that was common to all of them. And the book, the first choice is intention, the intention to be happy. And I I read one... uh, um, um, story, anecdote of somebody who got in touch with her intention. I want to read another one, lest you think that, oh, well, I've had so much conditioning another way, I can never change. This is the story of Maddie. 
who was one of these extremely happy, and by the way, as I said before, the extremely happy people are not happy all the time. They're not, they don't have a, a pasty, smiley smile on. They're engaged with life, and they can be here for all that life brings. And they just happen to see the goodness in life as their main inclination, and they can process the the sorrows skillfully. Um, As she told us the story of her life, the contrast between the happy woman we saw before us and the unhappy childhood she described was remarkable. Maddie's parents were part of the Hollywood elite of the early 1950s, She should have had an idyllic childhood, enjoying the opulent grounds of the mansion in which she was raised. But each new day in the lives of nine-year-old Maddie and her little brother Carl brought new new uncertainties and fears. Their mother, alcoholic, drug-addicted, and violent, periodically took an axe to the family Cadillac. As Maddie's mother's addictions took hold and her violent behavior increased, Maddie's father abandoned the family. Eventually, even the servants fled in the face of her unpredictable rages. Maddie and Carl were left alone with their disturbed mother who often didn't leave the house for days on end. Miles from the nearest market, they lived on peanut butter and tried to stay out of their mother's way. And this is her talking. My brother and I were, un- were usually by ourselves all day long. On school days, the bus dropped us off to a quiet and foreboding house. Some days, we would hardly see our mother at all. We were so unhappy, almost numb. I knew the kids at school were different from us. I wanted to be like them. They were relaxed. They laughed and joked and seemed to really enjoy their days. This was mysterious to me at the time. Then one day I said to myself, I'm going to be happy just like the other kids. I remember telling Carl I had it all figured out. Maddie could see that her mother was miserable compared to the other mothers she knew, so she reasoned that the only way to be happy was to do exactly the opposite of what her mother did. (laughs) She came up with an ingenious plan to learn in reverse. Her again. One day, sitting on the steps outside the vacant servants' quarters where we could hide out, Carl and I made a pact. We promised each other that we would find new ways to be happy every day. And each time we did, whether it was playing a new game, telling a new joke, or having a good laugh, we would be different from her. This was a moment that will be etched in my memory forever. Carl and I still talk about it as the liberating moment in our childhood. It takes a decision, but once you decide, then life starts to open up for you. I'll share with you one other story of a change, a big change, that had a huge effect not only for this person, but for many, many people since. This is... um, the story of Martin Seligman, who is the father of a movement that's very, very popular and that's really the, the cutting edge of psychology in the last 10 years or so, called positive psychology. He was the president of the American Psychological Association, and he wrote this book, Authentic Happiness, um, and there's a whole, there's waves, positive psychology movement. You might have read it's the most popular course in Harvard, and uh, it's, you know, in, in Newsweek and Time, and it's part of the, the zeitgeist of, of seeing, uh, exploring happiness along with brain research and other stuff. But this is how the positive psychology movement started. It all started while I was weeding in my garden with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki. I have to confess that even though I've written a book and many articles about children, I'm not actually very good with them. I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm weeding. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air and dancing and singing. Since she was distracting me, I yelled at her, and she walked away. Within a few minutes, she was back saying, Daddy, I want to talk to you. (laughs) Yes, Nikki? Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday? From when I was three until when I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. 
On my fifth birthday, I decided I wasn't going to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. (laughs) This was an epiphany for me. In terms of my own life, Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I'd spent 50 years enduring mostly wet weather in my soul, and the last 10 years as a walking nimbus cloud in a household radiant with sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to being grumpy, but in spite of it, in that moment, I resolved to change. And that was the start of the positive psychology movement. We can change, but it calls for our intention to change. And as soon as we get clear, we want to go for happiness in our life, then we start to bring that about and not seeing it as something that's selfish for ourselves, but if there is more happiness in your heart, then you're bringing more happiness into the world. It's a gift to everybody else. They don't benefit from your grumpiness. We can put up with it and certainly understand, but the more we cultivate that, the, the greater the gift. So this is the first intention to change. A second key aspect of awakening joy is seeing that the foundation of a happy and peaceful heart is living a life of integrity. This is in the the Eightfold Path, you know, sila, uh, uh, sila, samadhi, and panya, that it starts with a foundation of integrity because otherwise we can't experience the fullness of of our ease and and peace in heart, and we can't concentrate, we can't meditate as easily as we'd like to, and uh, our wisdom doesn't flow. The Buddha called this kind of happiness the bliss of blamelessness in one discourse. In in one discourse, uh, he's talking to about lay people, even those who don't practice, there are four kinds of happiness that anyone can experience in this particular discourse. He said there's the happiness of being free of debt. Very practical. That feels good. There's the happiness of having enough, um, uh, enough resources that not only are you free of debt, but you can take care of your loved ones. There's the happiness of prosperity that's, uh, that's even larger, that you can be generous with people that you don't even know. That's a great source of happiness. And then the fourth happiness is this bliss of blamelessness, to live with integrity. And in the discourse, he says, compared to the bliss of blamelessness, the other three are not one-sixteenth as potent a source of happiness. I don't know how he figured that out, (laughs) but that's just what it says in the discourse. And when I reflected on it, it was so obvious. You can have all the wealth in the world, and if you don't have a peaceful heart, you're not going to be able to really enjoy it. And we are wired up so that we can hear inside when we are off and when we're not. Those uh, Miyoshin a couple of uh, uh, last week was talking about the, the wholesome qualities of Hiri and Otapam, of what's called moral shame and moral dread. Those are wholesome qualities, thinking, ooh, if I do this, I'm not going to feel so good. You know? Or if I do this, oh, people who I respect, the wise would reprove me if, I, if they found out. And so there's a kind of governing system inside that says, mm, I don't know about this. We have a different name than Hiri and Otapam. What do we call it? Anyone? Huh? Conscience. Right? It's a good... Can you imagine what it would be like if we weren't wired up with conscience? 
It's a pretty dicey world as it is, but we have this inside of us, and if we can listen, if we really can listen and respect and hear the wisdom and the truth in that, then we are coming to peace inside. I wanted to share with you um, a revelation that a young person, an 18-year-old, had on his first retreat about the secret of happiness. And I was lucky enough that he shared this with me. He says, this is at the very end of his first retreat. As I'm writing, I'm channeling a revelation about the secret to long-term happiness. Here it is. The real secret to long-term happiness stems from knowing that one's actions are in impeccable alignment with the truth. When there is an ingrained knowing that you're doing your absolute humanly possible best to be generous, compassionate, and trying your hardest not to cause harm to any other being, that is it. Underlined it three times. There's nothing you can possibly blame yourself for. And there's nothing anyone else can blame you for. Suddenly, an inconceivable weight is lifted from your shoulders. In essence, you are frictionless with the cycle of suffering. We all know that to be true, don't we? This is actually, I was talking with Andy the other day, and uh, he pointed out another, uh, in another um, discourse around this bliss or blameness. The Buddha says, for one who is virtuous and endowed with virtue, it is a natural law that remorse will not arise. For one free of remorse, it is a natural law that gladness will arise. For one who is glad at heart, it is a natural uh, law that joy will arise. For one who is joyful, it is a natural law that the body will be at ease. For one, the body will be at ease. It is a natural law that one will feel happiness. And then it goes on, one will feel concentrated, etc., etc., all the way up to um, enlightenment. So, acting with integrity, having intention, acting with integrity, refining our mindfulness... That is, noticing what is good in life, as Ajahn Sumedho says. To look for the good and experience the gladness of the wholesome. Now, this has been a practice of mine for many years that I received or got from one of my main inspirations, um, Neem Karoli Baba who I mentioned about being with Ram Dass a couple of years ago, uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, and uh, reading Be Here Now really turned my life. And Neem Karoli Baba, or known as Maharaji, had some very simple teachings. One teaching that I took to heart was keep looking for the good. Because if you keep on looking for what's good, you will find it and you will draw it out. And when I first heard this, I was a school teacher in, in New York and I had a, um, a pact with myself. At the beginning of each term, I would try to find the key to each child's heart. And some, it's really easy. You know, there's just, you know, they dazzle you. And some... It's not as easy because they've been wounded in some way. But it sometimes took quiet moments in, uh, in, in a very tender setting and, and a, um, just a special moment. But sooner or later, every child you know, wanted to be seen and their goodness could come out. And that is a, just a really... Um, wonderful way to live life because we affect everybody around us. You know, if, you, if you're sitting there in a room and somebody comes in and you 
sense that they're looking at your flaws and they see all your foibles and shortcomings and flaws, how do you feel? Flawed, don't you? Somebody can come in the room and maybe they see all your, they know all your shortcomings, but they see your beauty and they're just going right for that, right? How do you feel? Beautiful. Or if I can be so bold, beautiful. Right? <laughs> you feel beautiful because they, you, that's what they're drawing out. That's why it's so Amazing to be around the Dalai Lama. You know, you're around him and he's seeing a Buddha in everybody. And then you might start thinking, oh, maybe I am a Buddha. Okay. We have a tremendous power to draw that out of everyone just by what we look for. And so refining our mindfulness, not just to look for what is wrong, but for look what, looking for what is good. Thich Nhat Hanh has, has this um, uh, this practice, he says, uh, he calls it looking for what's not wrong. Oh, last week I had a toothache. Oh, I don't have a toothache now. Oh, how wonderful. Looking for what's not wrong. And we can start to see it. And this is, again, not about denial, but about just noticing, having our radar out for all the goodness and the beauty in life, like Ajahn Sumedho says. This is from uh, somebody in, uh, in, in a, the, an early joy course who is a very aversive person. I've gotten to know this guy. Really, He's great. And we have just this wonderful relationship. And he's actually, he's a pretty happy guy now. But by his own admission, you know, he, he's heavy-duty aversive by nature. And this is what he, uh, what he reported as he was practicing this. He said, um, as, as I was driving into the city, he told, told the group, there was a whole lot of really slow traffic. I tend to get frustrated and contracted when I'm caught in that and I start thinking about everything that's wrong in our society. <laughs> I get on a roll. Suddenly... Suddenly, as I was doing this, I stopped and I said to myself, now, wait a minute. Is there any joy here anywhere? And I saw that I could just switch the channels. I looked out and I saw the water in the San Francisco Bay. I looked up and it was a clear day. I opened my sunroof and I said to myself, you know, it's not so bad. I realized that there's a switch that I'm starting to nurture that I didn't know was there before. So looking for not just what's wrong, but also what's good in life. It's another aspect of mindfulness. As we do that, there's a sense of appreciation and wonder. One of the choices in the the, uh, happiness book is appreciation. And Rick, one of the authors, said he really saw that appreciation is not just gratitude, it's an acute noticing of all the miracles in life. Just a heightened awareness. And I'm sure people sitting here on retreat know what that's like. You know, as, as you get quieter and quieter, as you walk outside, you ever have that experience where you just all of a sudden notice a plant and see it growing? Because we're so tuned in. I remember when I was a kid, maybe you can relate to this. If not, it'll probably seem a little weird. (laughs) But there would be, um, you ever look at a shaft of light coming through the window and look up close, a shaft of sunlight, and you're just looking at a whole dance in there? Wow. I used to spend a lot of time doing that. And if somebody asked what, what you're doing if you say, oh, I'm watching dust. You know, it doesn't sound very scintillating, but it's right there as we take a look and refine our awareness. There's a miracle happening all over the place. Where is this? Uh, this is from Einstein. 
the most beautiful and profound emotion we can experience is the sensation of the mystical. It is the sower of all true science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. So as we look more deeply into life and see the miracles around, I mean, when you think about it, this body that we take for granted, what's going on? The blood knows how to go around and feed all the cells, and the heart knows how to pump, and the lungs know how to get the oxygen, and all of these processes, the cut knows how to be healed all by itself. There's miracles all around, but we miss it because we are just staying on one level of reality. So it's looking a bit more deeply. And out of that comes an experience of gratitude. And gratitude is a very potent aspect of opening the heart and awakening joy. One uh, Tibetan teacher, Sokni Rinpoche, talks about gratitude and devotion. And the, the heart that opens with gratitude is like having your satellite dish out to receive all the blessings of the lineage. You know, if we're contracted saying, yeah, this is wrong and that's wrong, there's no way for the blessings to get in or to be experienced. But a grateful heart allows it in and it kind of completes our circuit with the universe. And we, everybody in this room, has extraordinarily good karma to be opening up to that gratitude. And I don't have to go into it too much, but just even to have the inclination, opportunity to practice in this setting, to be held in the Dharma, no matter what other circumstances in your life, there's a lot to be grateful for. And in that gratitude, the natural outflow is a generous, generosity of heart. And I, I talked a, a fair amount about this the last talk, so I won't go into it too much. But I do want to say that the Buddha said this is where, um, this is the first paramita where we can experience that equipment of mind, thinking I'm generous. And the, the flowering of that is service. Tagore, Rabindranath Tagore has these lines. Perhaps you you know, I slept and dreamed that life was joy. I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted, and behold, service was joy. That when we're not depleting ourselves, when we really respect our own uh, resources, when we're coming from a sense of abundance, we, it feels good to share. And in the, in the Authentic Happiness book, Seligman makes the point that real happiness is not what we can get from life, but what we give to life. To find our own virtues and strengths and to express them, that's where the real fullness of gratification and happiness comes from. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about some other aspects of Buddha Dharma as awakening to joy that might not be as obvious. One is embracing dukkha, embracing our suffering, embracing our challenges and our sorrows, that this is a path to happiness. In fact, when the Buddha was asked what he taught, he said, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. And he said, the more we can understand the nature of suffering, we don't flinch from it. We understand this is part of life. And then we can open up to everything and to a complete open-heartedness that can embrace everything in life. And that freedom leads to the ultimate freedom. So the paradox is the more that you understand it, the happier you can get if you use it wisely. And when I think about it, the, the, the people who inspire me most, who embody joy, there's two people who come to my mind, 
for years who really embody joy. One of them, you can probably guess, is His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And the other is um, Bishop Desmond Tutu. Both of those have seen more suffering probably than all of us in this room put together many times over. Horrors and tortures and their country torn apart. And yet, they are these embodiments of infectious joy. How is that possible? Because they've so integrated suffering that they don't flinch at all. In one of the teachings that the Buddha gives, there is a a list, there's a teaching called Transcendental Dependent Arising. Did I mention this here before? And it's a a very uh, profound um, teaching. He says, he starts out, it's getting off the wheel of dependent origination. And it starts out, suffering can be the causative factor for faith. Faith can be the causative factor for gladness. Gladness can be the causative factor for joy and up and up, contentment, equanimity, etc., etc., all the way to awakening. Suffering can be the causative factor for faith. Probably many people here came to the Dharma because of suffering. I know I sure did. Looking for some way out. And here we are. Somehow we've been graced to have exposure to these profound teachings, and our faith is growing and growing. So how we deal with suffering is the key. And in the the book on happiness, one of those choices is called recasting, which is basically making meaning, coming, coming to meaning out of your own suffering. My favorite line in the book is from... This, um, this guy, Maurice Washington, the 87-year-old uh, jazz musician, <clears throat> upon learning that uh, after his uh, a debilitating stroke, he could no longer play his beloved saxophone. And he says, without that saxophone in my mouth, I've learned to sing. That's pretty neat. And he's not just feeding himself a line. Oh, here's something else I can do, I get to do. This is from someone who uh, I've, I, I know well and gotten close with, just to so, show you the possibilities of turning real dukkha into joy. This is a woman who comes each year at, uh, to, to the course in February that I teach because it's the anniversary during that time of the death of her uh, teenage daughter. It's now uh, eight years uh, from this year, was eighth year. And her teenage daughter at the age of 14 took her life. This radiant being, I've seen pictures of her. And it took my friend about four or five years to, to process all the pain, all the grief, all the sorrow. But she was committed to doing it. And she came out the other end and is this amazing person. She could be in this happiness book. She's just radiant when you're around her. And she sent me this card a f- couple of years ago when she really made that turn. She said... Going through this heartbreaking experience, and I now see I have received a gift that is beyond words. I've witnessed my deepest despair, the darkest, most wounded quarters of my heart, and learned not to flinch or back away. I rested in love and learned to even taste joy, all the while still knowing the sorrow of my loss. A few days ago, I held a bereaved mother in my arms as she sobbed. She'd lost her son to suicide because Nancy now um, counsels people who've gone through what she's, she goes through, she went through. She lost her son to suicide. I held her in my heart as she held on for dear life. 
And as I rocked her, it was as if I was rocking Julia, rocking myself, rocking the broken hearts of all beings. And in that rocking, in that holding, we were all held in one heart. I've been so blessed. So this is no small thing. When we encounter suffering, it's not taking away from our joy. It is the path to opening up to everything in our life and to really experience and awaken joy. I'll just mention a couple more because it's, it's getting, getting late. There is the joy of letting go. We talked about this the other night as well. The joy that comes from in that letting go of what we think we need in discriminating the difference between what we want and what we really need, we lighten the load. We lighten the extra baggage. And that means letting can be letting go of stuff. It can mean letting go of our stories, of who we think we are. It can be letting go of the extra things in our life that we try to crowd and get out of balance. Mostly it comes down to letting go of this idea of control, that we can control life. We can't. And in that letting go, we can open up to a real trust in life. Trust is the key. And it might take a leap of faith, but actually as we let go more and more, we're held by life. The image that I, I have is like a little kid learning to swim. You know, you put a kid in, remember maybe when you were learning to swim and somebody put you in the water and they said, you know, just relax. And you say, relax, you know, I'm drowning here. Just relax. And then after a while, you might get the idea about treading water. Oh, this is much better. And then more and more as you trust, when you completely let go and you float, isn't that the most magical thing? Oh, I don't struggle. I'm supported. Life is holding me. I can just relax here. This is what we're learning directly in our practice, to more and more let go of our control and allow life to hold us as long as we're doing our part to wake up. There's the joy that comes, of course, from metta practice, and we talked about that a lot last time, especially in ourselves, and then to experience that connection with everybody else. The more you understand this one and feel love for it, the more you can really open up to love for everyone. And then there's mudita practice, the joy of tuning into the happiness around you, joy in the happiness of others. This sometimes is one of the hardest of all Brahma Viharas. I, I came across a line from Montaigne, the French philosopher. He said, there's something not altogether displeasing in the misfortune of our friends. Uh, you know, and that's part of human. Well, that means, okay, well, less, you know, okay, they got it, and I'm okay. they got the, the unhappiness. And, but it's a misperception to think there's a quota on happiness. The more happiness there is in the world, the more happiness there is in the world. If there was a quota on happiness, then if somebody came into a room and they were angry, you'd say, oh, good, they've got the anger, and I can just be happy here. No, you pick up on that vibe. It rubs off on you. Well, when there's happiness, if you think there's, oh, there's more happiness in the world. As the Dalai Lama says, if your happiness depends on your own well-being, it's very limited. But if it can be activated by the happiness around you, you up your chances six billion to one. <laughs> there's the joy of a concentrated mind. Many other kinds of joys as we cultivate wholesome states leading up to the joy of liberation the joy of freedom, the sweet joy of the way, aiming for the highest happiness where there's no contention with life, where there's no separation between this being and everything else, 
where there's no identification with experience, that's complete freedom. And our task is to find that in ourselves and then help awaken it in others. This is from Nyosho Kempo, who says, Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment, is present in everyone. Its essence is forever pure, unalloyed, and flawless. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore or overlook it are deluded. There is no way to enlightenment other than by recognizing Buddha nature and authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being. So, I hope you can see that practice is a path of direct cultivation of happiness and joy. As long as we're facing in the right direction and we can hold it in that way, we will open up all the goodness that's here and let it shine through. I'll close with this line from Rumi. He says, Keep knocking and the joy inside will eventually open open a window and look outside to see who's there. Keep knocking and the joy inside will eventually open a window and look outside to see who's there. Let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.